29 AD, there was one about to change the world. Fully man, fully God, Jesus. Next to him was a friend who witnessed everything. He saw early miracles. He sat at his right hand. His own eyes saw Jesus transfigured. The very heart of Christ was poured out to him, and he was there at the cross on the day history was altered. These are the words and the story of John. Well, there was, uh, there was a great story about uh, uh, what happened in the 1920s in Russia. Stalin ordered all of the Bibles be purged from the country. Stalin believed that, that an atheist country was far better than a religious country. And so he was trying to purge all of the Bibles and all the believers out of Russia. And there was a city called Stavropol where they completely eradicated the Bibles and got all of the Christians out of that city. And uh, many of those people died in those gulags. In 1994, there was a Bible Commission team that found themselves in Stavropol, and they didn't know about the history of the city at that time, and they were just trying to get Bibles out of Moscow back to the city. Well, somebody came to them and said, hey, there's a warehouse full of Bibles from the 1920s when Stalin had had them all taken out. So the team sat and they prayed, and someone said, hey, would someone go reach the people at the warehouse and ask them if we can have them? So they did. And they went over and they got approval to take these Bibles out of this warehouse. So the next day, the commission group went with a team of young people to help get these Bibles out of this warehouse. And one of the young men uh, was a skeptical, hostile, agnostic university student. And he came just to make some money that day. And so they started loading all these Bibles on the truck. They're working for hours and this kid disappears. And somebody said, let's go find this young man. So they went and found him in a corner. And he was weeping, absolutely crying. And what he said was, I went to go steal a Bible because I wanted to see what it was all about. And I wanted to keep this thing for myself after everybody got away. And when I opened the inside of the Bible, it was signed by my grandmother. And in it, she had prayed for me and my city that we would come to know Jesus. And that young man stood there and they just couldn't get him to stop crying because he came face to face with Jesus through his grandmother who had been persecuted and died in a gulag and prayed for him in that Bible. Tonight we see two incredible demonstrations of that same transformative power of Jesus. Jesus is very low key in one event and he's very public and powerful in the other. Likewise, Jesus can come do a miracle to transform your life. He can come in quietly and unannounced, or he can come in and flip over your world. You know, it doesn't really matter to Jesus which one he has to use. When you ask him to come to be Lord of your life, you can count on the fact that he will transform it. So my prayer tonight is that you will, in fact, Ask Jesus to be Lord of your whole life and give him access to that place where you need him to make a radical transformation. Let's open with prayer. Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you for this time with these dear precious brothers. Holy Spirit, speak to us right now, Lord. Lord, don't let our phone be what speaks to us. Let us hear your voice. Lord, don't let my voice or my mannerisms distract these dear brothers from hearing you speak to them. Jesus, we need you to transform us. Please come now. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, let me start by bringing some context with three thoughts about this idea of a wedding in Cana. First, 
Mary, Jesus, and the disciples did get invited to this wedding, and we don't really know if it's family or friends, but we can do some speculation. Jesus had a new disciple. His name was Nathaniel, and he was actually from Cana. And so maybe it was Nathaniel's family that invited him to this wedding. Also, we can see that Nazareth is only seven miles or about four miles, seven kilometers, about four miles from Cana. That's where Jesus grew up. It's, it's only about an hour and a half walk. So it's very possible that Mary had family there. Uh, most presume that Joseph was dead at this point. And so Mary probably did lean on Jesus, but she was probably leaning on her extended family that may have fact been in Cana. And so it's very possible that family invited them to this wedding. Second thought here, one of our leaders this Saturday when we were meeting is from India. And he said this story spoke to his heart because it felt like he was home again in that everybody in an Eastern wedding participates. The whole neighborhood comes together at a wedding and they all work on building it out, getting it ready, prepping for weeks at a time. They're all involved. It's a very community-oriented event. So when he reads this, he's like, of course they were invited. This is what communities do there, you know? And so that really helped me explain why Jesus and his disciples would come. Another third point on this topic of why this story John's the only one that writes about this in the four Gospels. This is a unique thing. So if you go look at the other, the story's not there. One key reason was he wrote later than they did, but more importantly, he was living in Ephesus, which is a town that's in modern-day Turkey right across from Greece. It's a heavily populated Greek uh, population, right? So the Greeks worshipped numerous gods, and one of their primary gods was Dionysus the god of wine. Huh. They truly believed all wine came from this god. And when there was a huge abundance of overflowing wine, like at a wedding, they truly believed that God Dionysus was in there at that moment, creating that wine and blessing that moment. So John is speaking directly to these Greeks without unabashed apology in any way, saying, no, no, there's one true god. His name is Jesus. He makes wine, not Dionysus. Jesus is the one true God. This is a powerful statement to the Greek audience. So we see at the beginning Jesus attending the wedding in Cana. And we can infer that Jesus deeply values marriage by being there. He deeply values relationships. In all four Gospels, he told numerous stories that include wedding metaphors that assign high value to marriage. The most stark place you'll find this is in Matthew 19 when Jesus was asked about divorce. And he said, what God bound together, let no man tear apart. Marriage in God's eyes is a lifetime commitment of one man to one woman. God gave marriage its value, not us. We don't define what marriage is. God defines what marriage is. Marriage is God's institution. He assigns the purpose. He created the structure. All other those relational forms are made by man. They're not by God. It was the very first institution created, first institution created, and it was created long before the fall. It was designed as the foundation for building a world that was a sanctuary where God and man would live in intimate fellowship. Marriage was designed around this same intimacy that God had with Jesus and the Holy Spirit. That was its symbol. Weddings are the start of a very significant change in a man and a woman. And you guys that are married know this. 
Where marriage launches a transformation of you that's the most significant transformation that happens in your life. And it was meant to draw you both towards Jesus. That's its purpose. Jesus cherishes our, cherishes our marriages. They're critical to our relationship with God and our children. And this miracle in Cana also initiates the marriage of Jesus to the bride, his church. This is his launch of that moment. While marriage is essential, you guys, I do recognize it is extremely difficult, and I'll be the first to say it. For me, there's plenty of days when I lose interest and I get sick of the battle. It's hard. My kids are grown now, and many men my age get divorced and find younger girls. And younger girls certainly look better from a distance. Men, your mind will often try to tell you this is what you need, and I'm telling you, it happens at every single stage of marriage, and it never stops. That's the devil doing what he did to Adam and Eve. He tore them apart. His lies fractured that relationship with each other and with God. And if you decide to buy that same lie, you will destroy your wife, your children, your life with your friends, your church, and your relationship with God. Don't buy the lie. There's nothing about that lie that works out well. Please put in the hard work and don't tear apart what God said should be for a lifetime. There's a good reason he designed it that way. Let's follow it. What does Jesus need to transform in your marriage right now? Mary asked Jesus to help with the wine shortage. She knows Jesus cares about this couple. She knows that he doesn't want to see them humiliated. And she also knows that he cares about her. She knows that Jesus knows the fifth commandment. He wrote it. Honor thy father and mother. You think he's going to break it? <laughs> Mary's pretty sneaky, isn't she? She's a wise lady. Mary relied on Jesus with, when Joseph was gone. So I think this was a familiar conversation. Can you help me out? This was a conversation that was often going on between a mother and her firstborn son. I love that Mary did ask with confidence, knowing Jesus would respond. When you go to Jesus, do you ask with confidence? Or do you go like it's more like buying a lottery ticket, hoping for the win? Mary tells the servants to do whatever Jesus asks. Mary has watched God's son grow up in her home. <laughs> Miracles, I suspect, were common. My guess is they never ran out of food. <laughs> Mary trusted that whatever Jesus decided, it would be good. And we trust. Do we trust God like that? Do you trust him in your prayers that way she did? She trusted him, man, like she knew what he said. Do. It's going to happen. When you pray, do you trust like that? Well, the trust shows up in how you follow the directions when you get the answer. How do you respond to the answers when you get those when you pray to Jesus? When you get answers from Jesus, do you move quick? Do you believe them? Or do you wait for the next answer or not do anything? How do you respond to the answers you get when you pray to Jesus? Jesus chose water and pots used for Jewish cleansing to make wine. Empty pots symbolize the empty rituals of the Jewish laws. Purifying waters was one of the methods Moses gave the Jews to cleanse away sin. Jesus is signaling that this old way of being purified would be replaced with something dramatically better. Wine represents the blood of Jesus that will be used to cleanse all people. 
We take communion and we drink the cup of wine to remember that truth. The blood of Jesus on the cross will replace all forms of cleansing. Jesus died so you can be forgiven every single time you sin. And you know what you don't have to do? You don't have to work. You don't have to wash. You don't have to get baptized again. And you don't have to kill any animals. None of that's required. All you have to do is confess your sins, bring them into the light, and repent, which means stop doing what you're doing. And Jesus promises you will find incredible freedom when you do that. Water doesn't purify your soul. Jesus does. And I sat and I watched a miracle like that last night in my, in my house when a young man confessed and I watched God liberate him from a life that was being hidden. It's powerful, you guys. What do you need to confess to Jesus right now and be liberated from? Jesus allowed the servants and the disciples to see the miracles. Now, on a practical level, Jesus keeps this quiet because he does want to protect the bride and groom. He doesn't want to see them be humiliated. And the bride and groom would have been had Jesus reported that they had run out of wine. But Jesus wants us to know when he comes, he comes to save our life. He does not come to humiliate you. At a social level, Jesus assigns dignity to the servants. I love this part of it. He includes them in an intimate event that connects them to him and them to the people and the bridal party. He aligns himself with the lowest people, the servants. Jesus said, I came to serve, not to be served. And Jesus also said, in my kingdom, the least will be the greatest. Just as he did for them, Jesus wants us to see him as God. He wants us to participate in miracles with him so we can experience the incredible joy it brings to people. When you start serving, you will see Jesus work. You'll see him when you start serving. Men who don't serve rarely experience the power of Jesus, rarely. And you talk to guys and say, I never experienced the power of Jesus. I don't see miracles. Just say, well, how do you serve? And what you're going to hear most of the time is I don't. The story teaches us clearly, you guys, that servants see miracles. How can you get more involved in serving with Jesus? Jesus turns water to wine. Water only has oxygen and hydrogen atoms. I got a chemical engineering degree. Sorry about this question. I did well in organic chemistry. <laughs> That's my nerdy side. Sorry. Wine, of course, has hydrogen, oxygen, carbon, and nitrogen atoms in it. Jesus had to create atoms that did not exist in those jars. They weren't there. That's incredible to think about. Grape juice becomes wine when, you, when naturally occurring yeast converts the sugar juice to alcohol. This is called fermentation, and it takes weeks to occur. Jim, Jesus is making a powerful statement to Greeks and Jews. I can make anything from nothing, and I control time. Only God can do that. Therefore, Jesus is God. Just like in Genesis where God created all things from a dark, empty void, Jesus did the same thing in Cana and could do that in your life as well. Jesus can transform the dark, empty places in your heart into vibrant life that is far better than anything you can create or you can even imagine you can create. So what in your life needs to be dramatically better now? The story is often used to support excessively drinking. It's a common place people point to say, you know, alcohol is a good thing and all that and try to support this sort of alcoholic lifestyle. 
Luke 7.34 makes it clear Jesus did, in fact, drink wine, but he was not a drunk. There are 247 references to alcohol in the Bible. 145 of them are good, 40 are negative. Drinking wine is not prohibited by God. God created wine for good purposes. Getting drunk that can lead to sinful behavior is clearly wrong in the Bible. And also recognize, I think this is really critical, men who are alcoholics can be led back to alcoholic ways when you drink around them and you're not sensitive to that. I stopped drinking when my oldest son Taylor was born. I didn't drink till he turned 21 years old. I literally didn't touch a drop of alcohol from the time he was born till he was 21. I saw five generations in my family line abuse alcohol, and I had no desire or any intent to ever let that come into my home. Now, I still drink a glass of wine with dinner now and then, but I'm extremely careful who I drink with and how much. The alcohol Jesus drank also was very dilute. The Jewish Talmud and the Mishnah from that time showed dilution rates for Passover were three to one, three water to one wine, which meant the alcohol levels were below 4%. Alcohol made the water safer and water made the wine safe through dilution. After boiling grapes, juice kills the yeast and stops fermentation. It boils off all the alcohol. Much of the wine being drank back then was boiled grape juice. The Bible does not support drinking to get drunk in any way. So if you use that text for that purpose, you're misaligning what God said. How does your way of managing alcohol in your life impact your family and your friends? That's the question to ask. How does your way of managing alcohol impact your family and your friends? Well, let's switch stories. Jesus walked 16 miles to Capernaum. And uh, he goes, it's about 16 miles from Cana to Capernaum. He goes up to the Sea of Galilee. It's beautiful there. It's peaceful. And so I want to show you a, uh, uh, some slides up here of, of some maps to get you oriented where things are and help you understand a little geography. Someone want to go to the next slide? Or I got the slide thingy. I got it right here. Here's Mediterranean Sea over here. So you guys probably know where all that is. Africa's down here, you know, uh, Greece and Turkey are up there. So Jerusalem here, Galilee up here. So they're right here. Jesus born in Nazareth, there are weddings in Cana, and they walk about uh, 16 miles to here, right to here. So it's about a five-hour walk, and so they're up here. Capernaum's up here, Bethsaida's up here. This is where they hang out. This is their place. This is a good place, and this is the Jordan River that feeds the Dead Sea. This is down to like a trickle now. So this gives you a picture of the Sea of Galilee, kind of how it is. You can see the mountains all around it. You can see kind of some of the things that go on on the Sea of Galilee. It's really cool. Here's Capernaum up here in the north. We, came, we went to the uh, Sea of Galilee 12 years ago. Our family went there, and we've got uh, baptized right up in here. Uh, Taylor and I and Kyle all got baptized right there. So this was a very special place for our family. Beautiful place. We loved it. This is a picture from the one shore looking across. So this is, this is Capernaum up in this area up in here. And this is the, that same shore. Those, this is near Tiberias. So this is south of there, but this is the, what the shoreline looks off the Sea of Galilee. And this is Peter's house. So this is in Capernaum. So we stood next to this house, and they believe this is where Peter lived. This is where he was. So Peter's home was in Capernaum. He was a fisherman on that sea. So this is really a cool place, you guys. And this is me eating a fish from the Sea of Galilee. This is a tilapia. It's called St. Peter's fish, right? Don't I look good in there, right? Like a lot more hair, you know? Yeah, that's good, isn't it? <laughs> Philip was one of the disciples that was living in there. He was in Bethsaida, a neighboring town, and Peter's home was in Capernaum. So this was a place they went after the wedding. It was to rest. 
It was a place of rest. It's a beautiful place to rest. But you can imagine the questions these guys had for Jesus. What did you do? Why did this happen? And they, were, they had to figure it out, and it had to be an incredible spiritual high. Can you imagine having seen that, and you're with him walking there, and you're sitting on the shore like, what did you just do? Dude, this is crazy stuff. What's going on? This is their time to get into an incredibly deep relationship with Jesus. That's what's going on in this place. It's an incredible moment to rest and to unite and to bond and to create a home base that will truly become the place where Jesus finds respite. When he's hurting and he needs support, he goes back to Capernaum where Peter's family lives. This is where he wanted to be. Every guy needs a home church where he feels that way, guys. Everybody needs a place where you feel safe, where you feel connected, where you feel loved. And so I hope you guys know that at Heart of a Man, that's what we're trying to do. Invite guys from all different churches so when you go back to your home church, you know three, four, five guys. And when you walk in, that place feels like home to you. It's safe. You feel connected. And when you need help, you go there because it feels right to you. We don't want to replace your church. We just want all of us to go to different churches together where you're together with each other. And so that's the, real, that's the real heart of it, you guys. So where do you go when you need to feel connected, known, and safe? That's the question to ask, because that's where Jesus went. When he needed to be known, connected, and safe, where do you go for that? What's your place? And Jesus then went to Passover in Jerusalem. So you could see he went very far south, walking down that was required by Jewish law. In Luke 2, we find out his dad went there every single year. So he had been doing that since he was a little boy, always going to the temple at the time of Passover. This was following the Jewish laws. That's what he did. Jesus didn't say, don't obey the laws. I came to, uh, to change them all. He said, no, I came to fulfill the laws, right? Jesus wants us to follow God's, law, God's laws because they're good for us. In Ezekiel 11, it, it says, God will remove your heart of stone and he'll replace it with a new heart, a tender heart, one that's spiritually oriented, one that will give you a desire to follow God's laws, to see the good in him so that they're really sweet in your life. And so that's what it talks about. And the Bible aligns our heart with, the, with God and with the, with the spirit of God. And so that's what we're doing in Bible study. We keep coming back week after week after week to align you with God. The more you study the Bible with men, the more aligned you become to God's laws. Let me ask you this. What is honestly governing your behavior each day? Your laws or God's laws? Jesus found Jews making money in the temple. Jesus called the temple his father's house. His father's house is his house. I think a lot of people don't realize this. After a man, a Jewish man was married, he would take them back, his wife back to his father's house. They would add a room on. We saw that in Capernaum where all these stone walls were added to each space. A Jewish man would build a room on before his marriage to his father's house. And when he got married, he'd go back to his father's house with his bride. So do you think his father's house was special? Yes. A man's home was his father's home was a very special place. This is what he's talking about. This is my father's house. I love this place. It has deep meaning to me. I will bring my bride to this house. This is a powerful moment for Jesus. And he goes to the temple and these people are selling animals and exchanging currency. And while that needed to happen, it did not have to happen in the temple. They're right in the temple where the Gentiles meet in the courts of the Gentiles. And what's it keeping them from doing? They can't worship there because there's a marketplace there. So the very thing they should be doing somewhere else, they're doing right in the temple what it's not meant for and the people can't worship. Jesus saw the temple had lost its purpose by men who only cared about their prosperity. 
They'd forgotten what Moses taught. And what he taught was this. Remember Joshua? Moses said, Joshua, keep my laws. Study and meditate on them day and night, and it will go well with you. You will succeed in the land you've been given. That's what he told him. So they've forgotten all of this. It's the law that helps you succeed. Your relationship with God, it's not selling all this stuff. Jesus wants us to worship God in spirit, uncorrupted by this kind of distraction. And he makes our body a temple of the Holy Spirit so we can worship God anytime and anywhere. Let me ask you this. What would Jesus do if he came to visit your temple tonight? Jesus chased all those people out who were using the temple as a store. Jesus used a whip to move the large animals out, and he overturned the money changers' tables. And he told the people to move the doves. Look at this now. Go back and read this. He didn't empty the cages and let them fly away. He moved the cages with the birds in them to protect them. That doesn't sound like a guy that's out of control angry. The Bible says he was zealous and demanded people leave. He did use force to move the animals and the tables. We're not told he's angry, but people assume that. Jesus showed us what men look like that are passionate about the things of God, and they use their power for noble purpose. That's what it shows us. This passage doesn't say anything about destructive anger or using anger it's not uncommon for us men to get angry and use our physical power to control women, children, and other men. We do it all the time, you guys. I watch. This is one of men, us as men, this is one of our biggest struggle. We use our power to control people. Our anger is at the root of that, and we use it all the time. The passage, this passage does not in any way say that's right. The Bible as a whole consistently tells us not to let our anger cause us to sin. God saw Cain get angry. And he said to him, sin is crouching, and you better get control of your anger. Cain didn't listen, and he killed his brother. Anger for most men is a, often a sign of a deep-seated fear. Anger is often a sign of a deep-seated fear. Men, we have to connect the dots between our anger and what's causing us so much fear. Because when you connect the dots, you'll start to figure out to control it. I recommend you jump into a heart group with us and let some men work with you. We've got a lot of guys that have been working in this space, and guys are making progress. None of us are perfect, but we're getting a lot better with our anger than we were before we started. So let me ask you, how are you using your anger to control people in your life? Watch yourself. Literally, watch how you use anger. You'll be surprised how much you as a male use anger to control the people in your life. Jesus told, uh, told these people that he would tear down the temple and rebuild it in three days. They saw Solomon's temple tore down. They knew it took a lifetime to rebuild. This was a ridiculous statement made by Jesus. It made no sense. The disciples didn't even understand at this point either. But after the resurrection, they fully understood. His resurrection would be his proof of his authority. Jesus tore down the power and control of Jewish men in the temple. That's what he took down, was that power and control. Guys, Christian men have also used church for power, Sexual access, money, and recognition. This has gone on for thousands of years. Jesus condemns that behavior the same way he condemned this. How are you using Jesus for personal gain or to control people in your life? This one's hard, man. Like, you got to really take a close look because we do this a lot. And then Jesus said, I'm going to change the location of the temple forever. 
I'm going to tear this thing down because it's a place that they've corrupted. And he chose to put the temple in our hearts. Jesus chose to put the Holy Spirit in your heart for that very reason. Man will no longer have the ability to defame the temple because it won't be there. Jesus decentralized faith. This was an amazing moment, you guys. When he tears this apart, this concept, he's decentralizing faith. Russia, China, Iran, all these countries have been trying to kill the church for centuries, and they failed. Why? Because the church is in the heart of the believers. You can't kill it. The fastest-growing churches in the world are the places where they're trying to kill it the most. By decentralizing the temple, Jesus allowed the church to be forever free of the corruption of men. How can you allow your temple to impact your world around you? Let me close with this thought. This lesson was deeply personal for me. When I was growing up, I saw every single man in my life struggle with alcohol and anger. I have stark memory of my stepfather being drunk one night and angry at one of my brothers for being out past his curfew. And of course, that brother was drunk. So he came home drunk, and my stepfather is literally blocking the door, trying to keep him from getting in the house. And my other brother came up from behind him and is pulling on him, and my other, the brother outside shoved the door. It blew open. He drops on the floor. He was a big man, hit the ground hard, and they all got up and started pushing and swinging, and it, was, it just, I was never so scared in my life. And it made me remember when I was a little boy, I would go to these parties, with my grandma, and it wouldn't take but an hour, and there was nothing but alcohol and fighting and screaming and anger, and these battles would just tear these family, family parties apart because the men would be drunk. I had no idea how that stuff would be eliminated from my, night, my life. I had no idea, but I knew I hated it. I hated it. It's only now that I can look back and in total shock see that God intercepted my life for some reason. I don't know why. He removed all the alcohol, drugs, and anger from being part of my marriage. He gave my sons a safe home, and he helped me be a good father and a husband. Water to wine was pretty amazing, but protecting my wife, my children, and my grandchildren from a heritage of alcohol and anger, that's a miracle I can feel deep in my soul. And I thank you, Jesus. I believe. How do you need Jesus to radically transform your life tonight? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for changing mine. I was on that road to alcohol and anger, and you, I don't know why you picked me, but you did. Lord, I pray for my brothers that are on those similar paths that they need to help and they need to change and they need to transform and they won't let you in. Please soften their heart tonight. Let them know that you want to make their life incredible beyond anything they can imagine, Lord. Soften their heart to you. Help them believe in you and follow you, Lord. We love you, Jesus. Change us this week. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, guys, have a great night. Love you guys, man.